0: Hi there, folks. Welcome to the ManaCast. conversations about a vision of life that is truly good news for us, for our neighbors, and for the world. I'm Matt Anslow, and with me is Jonathan Cornford, and we're here to discuss issues that are related to faith, economics, and ecology. Uh, before we begin, we, uh, as always, want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the places uh, where we hail from. So, me living on the border of the Blue Mountains and uh, the central west of New South Wales, I'm living here on Gundungurra uh, and Durragland, and I want to pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging.
1: And for me here, Matt, I'm coming, talking from Bendigo in central Victoria. Here I'm on the land of the Jarrah clan of the Jar Jawarung language group. Uh, and so, likewise, I want to pay my respects to the current and past elders. Of the Jajawarang.
0: So, folks, the Mana Cast is uh, based on us discussing articles found in the last edition of Mana Matters, the uh, quarterly publication of Mana So, you won't have to have read the articles to make sense of this discussion. It might help, it might not, who knows? But hopefully, you find something of value in what we talk about here. All right, so Jonathan, um, why don't you tell us a bit about what we're discussing this, uh, in this podcast?
1: Well, today, Matt, we're going to discuss the article that you wrote, as you well know, mm-hmm. I'm sure, and with quite a provocative title, Consuming Desire. Uh, and I just realised that has a bit of a double entendre, doesn't it? Consuming Desire. I you can read that a couple I of times. I try, ones. I try, you know. Oh, very well done. And the subtitle is... Is a bit daunting, really, self-mastery as alternative to consumer culture. So, I mean, in so you've written, in one sense, an article about consumerism. Uh, We might say uh, another article about consumerism. There's a lot of articles out there now about consumerism, but you've gone to something a little bit different. Really, what your subject in this article is is desire. So, what what's prompted to Prompted you to want to talk about desire, Matt. Yeah, it's a good question.
0: Um, I think over the years I've talked about consumerism a lot, especially in previous roles that I've held in different um, organisations, in my teaching and and lecturing and all the rest. You know, I've talked about consumerism as many people have as a a real issue that we face uh, in our society and societies. One that is causing so much destruction in the world but the more that i've talked about it the more that i've realized that at the core of the problem isn't simply some abstract issue or just the fact that you know if we could buy a few things or make uh products a bit more ethical or fair trade or whatever you know we could solve the problem i i just don't think that's right at the core of the issue the, the, there's something much deeper than that and it goes into the very Part of who we are as people and what we want. I think that desire plays a key part in what consumerism and consumer culture actually are. And it's. I think it has to be the site of any alternative that we want to offer to consumerism. That is, we have to
1: learn how to desire differently. So when you're talking about desire, it really rings off for me, you know, one of the core tenets of Buddhism is that Desire is suffering, uh, and and I and I understand that to mean all desire is is suffering and leads to suffering. It's, how do you relate that Buddhist idea to the idea of desire that you're wanting to discuss? I, yeah
0: yeah that's a really yeah I I mean I haven't really thought about this much, and I got to, I must confess I'm not much of an expert on Buddhism, and I realise that there's multiple strands of Buddhism, and look I I'm not I'm not re- I'm not really educated on it enough to be able to speak intelligently on it. But I've also met Buddhists who take that basic view, um, that to desire is, is, is negative. It's a form of suffering and it's something, uh, from which we must be, you know, uh, set free or, or whatever, you know, excuse me, if that language isn't, the isn't correct, you know, but you know what I mean? We need to be freed from our desires, um and i can see i can see a lot of merit to that view i mean if we look around in our world and we look at what desire does to us it does cause a lot of suffering we think about the way in which we desire new products uh and sure the actual desire itself might not seem to do a lot of damage to us but i think it does a hell of a lot of damage to us internally and the way it shapes how we see the world, how it shapes uh, the effect that we have on the world, both individually and as a society. I mean, we're really seeing massive environmental degradation uh, because of consumerism. We're seeing people living lives that are utterly meaningless as they strive after the newest products and other people uh, living meaningless, uh, meaningless lives as they seek to produce those products. Very often, there's people are, are working in jobs where you've got to ask yourself, what is the purpose of this, uh, creating meaningless throwaway products? Um, so in that sense, you can say that desire does cause suffering. But I think where Christianity might depart from that view uh, is that, A, obviously for Christians, not all suffering is uh, inherently evil. Uh, we believe that uh, certain amounts of suffering are, can be good, such as when we suffer because we love. Yeah, sure, the suffering might not be good and ideal, but uh, we often are willing to give up things and to suffer in uh, for the ones that we love, and we would say that that's a good thing. But the other area where I think Christianity is distinct is that Christianity, since the earliest centuries of the church, has asserted that actually our desires are good if they are pointed in the right direction. And that ultimately, mm, yeah. everyone who lives desires God, even if, they are, even if that desire has been twisted or distorted or turned in the wrong direction, and we desire so-called earthly things. St. Augustine would say that our desires, whatever you know, whatever our desires may be for, all of our desires ultimately point to God, and we are seeking God in the earthly things that we desire.
1: Yes, yeah, and Augustine comes up with that great quote, doesn't he? He says, "Love God and do what you want," uh, and by that, he's not um, not giving license to basically a, a libertarian view of life, but it he, is. He's actually saying what you're saying that loving God is orienting our desire. It's the crucial thing to what we to what we do is orienting our desire in the right direction.
0: Right, and if we were truly free, we wouldn't actually just be able to choose to do uh, anything. Actually, true freedom would be to choose the good, to choose what is right and true and beautiful. And so, yeah, I, I completely agree. I think um, if we if our desires are pointed in the right direction, that is towards God, we could do whatever we wanted and it would be the good and the true.
1: So one, one of the things which I thought was really interesting in your article, Matt, is that you suggest at some point that in some ways, because we are we're actually we are oriented for or built with desire and for desire, that in some ways we're predisposed to consumerism. You suggest something like that, at least. And more than that, you, you think that consumerism and, and, and where we've gone with consumer culture is some sort of version of reaching towards the transcendent. What, what do you mean by that?
0: Yeah, so I think I say in the article, somewhat provocatively and somewhat you know, not entirely truthfully, uh, not entirely true, that consumerism is entirely natural. Uh now what I what I gotta be careful there because of course the true nature of humanity is is for God and for each other uh and for a life well lived and all the rest. Um so I don't wanna suggest that, you know, it, it's natural in consumerism is natural in that sense. I don't mean that. All I mean is that because our existence is ultimately uh pointed towards God in some way that we have been created by God in order to seek God, to love God, to be in relationship with God and one another, all of our desires point toward that end. And consumerism makes sense when we live in a world in which we've essentially severed the relationship between our desires and their true ends, that is to say God. When that happens, it makes sense that we would seek God, that we would seek the transcendent in all manner of things as we, you know, kind of strive to find the thing that gives meaning to our existence. And so consumerism seems to me to be an attempt to do that, to to reach out and to seek the transcendent, to seek God, to seek the ends of our very existence in, in very flawed kind of means. Uh, yes. Uh, you know, in very flawed things, I should say. And uh, to me, that makes complete sense. I think it's, it's, it's natural in a way that we would uh, succumb to consumer culture uh, in a world which doesn't really give us much meaning, that tells us there is no meaning except what you make for yourself. Well, you know, when we're left in that world, it, it makes sense uh, that, to, to embrace mm. consumerism in a way, even though I obviously don't think it's a good thing.
1: Yeah, and, and I think, and a pointer to that, um, which I think you sort of uh, raise in a way, is the way in which, w- where we've generally thought about consumerism as being an act of materialism, that's how we often, the other word we often use to apply to it. Actually, it's mm. often the opposite, really, because actually, what uh, the way in which we, we buy objects and then casually dispose of them so easily. Uh, and they just end up in landfill. I think the, the statistic is uh, most of the products uh, that we buy end up in landfill within two and a half weeks or something like that. Um, yeah, uh, it means that we actually see very little value in the matter and the material stuff themselves. And actually, what we're what we're consuming is something very fleeting. Uh, we we we're, we're after an experience, something which is intangible, uh, that, and that's why we have to keep consuming.
0: Yeah yeah that's right. I mean I in the article I talk about the the thought of a Catholic theologian named William Cavanaugh. And uh he talks about the he's has he has this little book uh and the name is escaping me right now. It's um uh, something it's being consumed. Being consumed, that's the one, that's right. You know he he talks about the fact that we uh, that our age is uh, it's not characterized by materialism in the sense that we're constantly just accruing more goods, right? We're just, you know, uh, coll- you know, collecting more stuff. I mean, in a sense we are, you go into many of our houses and the amount of stuff that we have is, is by historical standards, it's, it's crazy how much stuff we have. So that does happen, of course, but he all, he says that it's not simply that it's that we are characterized by a, a kind of, um, culture of detachment that, you know, we, we talk about the fact that we're too materialistic nowadays, but, but are we, we're not really all that enamored by the material world. We, we constantly buy stuff, but then as you say, Jonathan, we, we just throw it out not long after or it breaks and we get rid of it. We don't care about it that much. And so, yeah, in a sense, we are too materialistic. We're too focused on the things of this world at the expense of of you know God and seeing things in this world rightly through uh, through the lens of kind of God, if you if you will. But in a, in another sense, we're not materialistic enough. We don't genuinely love the material world as it ought to be loved. Mm. That is to say, you know, you got to love it rightly, you got to love it properly. It can't become an idol. But at the same time, you know, if we truly were materialistic, you'd expect that we would. Show a bit more care
1: for the material world, and we don't,
0: and and so that's one of the things I've been trying to say in this article.
1: Yeah, and and what I, one of the things I really like about what you what you're saying there is that uh, whereas I guess a lot of different times in Christian history, some of the more uh, some mystical or more Pietistic strands of Christianity have interpreted the idea of love of God as being solely for God and therefore having no love for the world uh, when actually what you're suggesting is the opposite uh, uh, having our fundamental and primary desire for love love for for God is the thing which rightly orders and cor- and, and uh, orders our desire for everything else and our concern for everything else and uh, and what's happened once we've severed, severed the love for God is our uh, the thing which correctly orders our desire for things and gives them a, a health, uh, a healthy desire for for things, is, is completely being uh, unanchored, and so we've got a, all sorts of unhealthy and unattainable desires for for this or that thing, or this and that experience. Uh, and so it, it it sees the love of God as not something that's separate from uh, our desire for other things in everything else in the world, but the thing that orders it. Yeah, yeah. And look, there are plenty of examples where we can see
0: how our desires have gone awry in this way. So the point is right. We, we can actually um, sanctify as maybe a heavy word to use, but we can sanctify the material world. It can become something through which we experience God. Uh, through which we experience love and goodness and truth and beauty. So, for example, food, right? I mean, how amazing a gift is food. Uh, I suppose, maybe you know, God probably could have made us without the need <laughs> to to eat and and to be sustained in that way. But the fact is, we we are. I know. Well, food can be such a great gift because it is the thing that can bring us together. It's a thing that can cross uh, cultural lines. It's a thing through which we can learn about people who are different to us. It's a thing that we can um, find reconciliation over. You know, food can be a great uh, medium through which we can resolve conflicts, right? Mm. But we also live in a world where there's there's a thing that I've cheekily called uh, food porn in, in the article. I talk about the idea that we uh, end up uh, creating images of food that are so unrealistic that it becomes almost like a form of pornography. In that it it seeks to you know uh, kind of arouse certain senses in us um, that are beyond what we would get from just regular food, maybe. It, it's derived from uh, the thought of, uh, of a philosopher in the 20th century a guy named uh Baudrillard and Baudrillard had this idea that he called hyperreality he, uh, he apparently the story goes that he went to uh Disneyland and he what he experienced at Disneyland he called hyperreality just this idea that everything was kind of real but was also like hyperreal it was it was beyond real more real than real in a sense, uh, in a in a in a kind of negative fake way, and in a sense we do that with uh, food and uh, you know ads and I in the in the article I use a few more examples like um what I call exercise porn. Anyone who's on Instagram has been confronted at some point with uh you know the, the influences and 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 that who. Uh, they post these <laughs> these <laughs> exercise pics, and they 're all they 're so unrealistic in a way i mean i 'm sure that those people are very very fit uh, much fitter than me and that 's fantastic, but the photos are so doctored um, so edited that it becomes something that 's not real it's it 's more real than real and in in being more real than real it's it 's less than real in a sense I, I know that doesn 't make sense, but hopefully people are <laughs> following what i 'm trying to say. Um, and we do the same with travel photos, right? You go on a travel, uh, website or anything like that. And you always see these amazing, uh, photos. They're, they're sort of almost hyper colored, you know, they're oversaturated. Uh, the, the contrast has been turned up to, you know, all the way. And, and there's always a wharf for some reason. It's always a shot that looks down a wharf (laughs) into the sunset, whatever the reason for that is. And, and, and it's, does that place really look like that? Or well, probably doesn't. Um, even in the most beautiful uh, sunset, it, the, the the photo has been so distorted that it no longer looks real. It's more real than real in a sense. And of course, you know, uh, traditional pornography, that is, you know, se- sex pornography uh, is another example of this, one that is causing, I think, so so significant uh, such significant issues in our culture with regards to how men perceive women and violence against women and this kind of thing. Mm, mm. It's it's sex that isn't real. Uh, if th- there's been quite a few documentaries on Netflix recently about uh, porn and people coming out of the porn industry, and they were, they're the first to say it's not real. I mean, we make certain sounds uh, and 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 we re- react in a certain way, but none of that is real. It's all an act. And boys yes. and, or mostly boys, girls as well, end up growing up uh, if they're watching this stuff, thinking that sex is a thing that it's not. They they see it as, you know, it, it, they're they're learning sex through a depiction of sex that is more real than real in a sense.
1: But but the funny thing is is that we we've, we've all been schooled into into producing images of unreality ourselves, be, to be producers of it. You know, the whole whole. Uh, medium of social media is in many ways uh, for people to self-publish uh, the images of their life, and 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 we're always doctoring and selecting our images uh, in ways that which really don't convey the full story of things.
0: Oh, that's right! Uh, social media is this canvas on which we can paint whatever picture of our lives we want, and I think that is probably part of the reason that social media. Is leading to so much anxiety uh, because whenever you go mm. on social media, yeah, people do share negative stories and harrowing things that have happened to them. But generally speaking, people are sharing their successes, the things that they want
1: to publish to the world. Oh, their, their food and travel pics.
0: Yeah, exactly. Their their latest uh, exercise regime, where they've got some like you know ten pack stomach or I don't know, you know, like it's um, and, and you see that and if that's all you ever see and then you look at your own life and think gee i'm i'm not like that like my my stomach is uh, you know mine's more like a keg than it is a, a six pack mate you know um or you know my food i can't cook like that i what 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 kind of crap am i eating at home or whatever the case may be uh i i i can understand why that would lead to serious anxiety and depression
1: uh, okay man in, in your article you so you see how our desire, the directions which our, our desire is oriented as, as a problem, but you also suggest that we can orient our uh, desire in other directions and that our desire needs to be oriented in other directions. Uh, and there's ways of schooling it or training desire in in more healthy directions. And you bring up the example of, of fasting, which I'm pretty sure won't be a very popular uh, thing for you to be raising there, Matt. Um, so, um, well, 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 one, what, what, when you talk about fasting, what, what, what are you thinking of? What are you imagining? You should maybe say something about that. And, um, uh, yeah, start, let's start with there.
0: Yeah, so the way that I tend to think about fasting is just depriving ourselves of the things that we want. Traditionally, that has been food. And so throughout Christian history, people have... Tended to go for periods um, without food, whether that was a long period. Obviously, in the in the Gospels, we see in in Matthew and Luke, we see Jesus fasting for forty days. Um, I'm not necessarily recommending that for everyone or anything, but maybe I don't know. But it was more common throughout Christian history for it to be uh, more regular fasts of shorter duration, and so. In some traditions, it's common to fast uh, once a week for a whole day. Mm. But yeah, generally, I, d- I just think of fasting as
1: depriving ourselves of the things that we desire. So, uh, and I, I guess you, you, the suggestion is is that 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 is something that helps us to discipline those desires. But but is there a danger that that fasting and I mean this has been a this has been a danger in Christian history that it it becomes quite a Quite quickly and easily, uh, quite a legalistic practice, something that we do for, you know, spiritual mm. credit points or something like that. And how, if, how do we avoid yeah, yeah. That, that danger?
0: Yeah, just to go to the first point, yeah, I think it is a way to train our desires. I think by depriving ourselves of our desires, we are training them such that we master our desires rather than having them master us. Um, and fasting is probably, you know, it's, I don't think it's the only way to do that, but I think it's a key way to do, uh, to do it. And I think it's a way to do it that is neglected, certainly in the kind of Christianity, uh, that you and I, Jonathan, tend to be associated with. I don't think we do fasting very often, um, except Mm. maybe in some, uh, Protestant traditions to, you know, we pray and we fast in order that God might hear our prayer or something. I don't know, you know, that's the feeling I get Mm. sometimes. Uh, but I think fasting is actually something that can help us to train our desires. And I'm not saying I've got this worked out personally, like I have a long way to go in trying to actually practice what I preach here. But in saying that I've started um, recently, uh, I, I realized um, at the beginning of the year that I just—I sugar was such an issue for me. <laughs> like I love sugary sweet food and it's been, you know, it, it shows on my body. Uh, <laughs> like I'm not exactly, uh, a beacon of fitness. And so I, I realized that that was a problem. And so what I decided to do was to just, uh, quit sugar, cold Turkey, except for one day a week. And so, yeah. um, and sugar meaning added sugar. So I eat fruit and all that kind of stuff. Obviously that has sugar in it, but, I just decided that actually the thing that I could do uh to try to v- master that desire for sweet food was to just say no and to cut it out and when I feel the desire to eat sweet food the thing that I can do then is to pray so in to replace eating the sweet food now I can I can pray and and you know I don't always um mm. uh, follow that through perfectly but but it's it's generally been been um pretty successful. Uh, in the last just few weeks, I've also started a, um, a fast, partly, um, I wanted to get, uh, you know, control of my, of my weight. Um, I'm not, I'm not obese or anything, but I'm not terribly fit. Uh, and I, I wanted to get control of my desires with regard to food. And so I've started fasting twice a week, uh, from when I wake up, uh, all the way to dinner. And so, you know, uh, that is not, I'm not recommending that for people, by the way. Um, And I'm not saying, you know, how great am I or anything like that. This is just my way of trying to put in my life certain habits uh, where I can actually confront my desires and try to master them rather than having uh, them master me. But to go to the second part of what you said, Jonathan, about this becoming legalistic, I think that's right. I think. This stuff can too easily become uh, a form of legalism that is a form of work that we have to do in order to uh please God or to be uh, holy or you know whatever the case may be and that is a that is a problem. Uh, it can become a source of pride by thinking, you know, how great am I? Because I fast or I pray or I read my Bible every day, whatever the case may be in your tradition, it can become a source of pride as well, which obviously God is not necessarily um, into. And and when it becomes a form of legalism, what's what's really sad about it is that it also becomes a source of guilt for people. And so I can remember Mm. early in my uh, time as a Christian, I was encouraged, you know, I, I was part of um, groups that would say, you know, you got to read your Bible and pray daily. What I found was when I interrogated that and talked to other people about it, they felt so much guilt because they they didn't do it that often. Mm. And so, uh, you know, devotions became a source of shame for people. And mm. I guess what I'd want to say about Anything like that, reading your Bible, praying or fasting in this case, I would want to make sure that we are seeing it not as something that we have to do, but something that we get to do. Yes,
1: something that, that that's there for our health.
0: Yeah, that's right. And something that's a gift. I mean, I, I think if I thought of the fasting that I'm trying to do as something that I have to do. I would feel so guilty and I'd give it up really quickly, but because I'm trying to see it as something that I get to do and that it, it, it helps me to become a better, more disciplined person. Um, it helps me to bring my desires under control. I think that that is all that's making all the difference for me in terms of being able to maintain these habits, you know, because I've tried to give up sugar in the past Um, and it was just a health thing or whatever and it never worked for me but when i've tried to integrate it into my life as a habit that is focused on my faith uh, and my uh, practice of spirituality uh, that's made a huge difference for me in terms of being able
1: to do it and to integrate it into my walk with god Uh, okay one last question matt um so that's that's in relation to food, what what's all this mean in relation to our use of things like Facebook and Google and Netflix and all the rest of it?
0: Yeah, yeah, right. Um, yeah, it's such a good question and it's so complicated. I mean I' gotta be honest with you, Jonathan, like I fantasize regularly about just going cold turkey from all social media. <laughs> like, I mean I just think that it's it's having such a negative effect on on all of us. Uh, and anyone who, you know, ironically enough, it's on Netflix, but anyone who's seen the recent documentary, um, The Social Dilemma, knows what I'm talking about. Um, and so if you've seen this documentary, you know that it's a bunch of people that they interview who are, you know, they used to be bigwigs in social media organizations like Facebook and Twitter and and all the rest. Talking about how negative social media is and, and the effect that it's had on them and the effect that it's having on the world. And they've got, you know, the, the U S scene in mind in particular, but yeah, um, I think yeah. we can draw analogies here as well. So what do we do about it? So yeah, social media, that is. Um,
1: I- Cause I'm conscious of two things in that, behind that question. Let me say, well, yeah, yeah. one is just um, our, the actual amount of the volume of consumption of those things mm. and the way that that's an issue in itself, uh, but, and, and what that uh, costs in terms of our attention to other things, but too even perhaps even more importantly, is all of those media uh, are key ways in which our desire is being schooled. They're all schools of desire in their own way. Yep. Yep. Uh, look, I,
0: I think that people need to really take stock of where they're at uh, with social media, what is going on in your life as a result of social media? Are you distracted from important things? Are you finding yourself habitually checking your phone or your laptop? Um, and just, you know, as a matter of course, typing facebook.com or twitter.com or whatever it may be, uh, in your, in your browser. If that's the case, you really have to wonder, uh, where you're at and how your how your internal life is currently going Uh, and I think you need to put in place a plan to be able to confront that stuff because uh, social media platforms are not neutral these are things that want your attention they want your they want your data um, but they don't want you to ever leave them (laughs) you know they (laughs) want you to spend more and more time on them they're designed intentionally to do that and so I use them. And yeah, honestly, there are times where I think, gee, I this has got more control of me than I do of it. And those are the times when I think fasting might be a good way to go. Um, you know, social media fasts uh, are seen in some circles that I travel in as kind of like light fasts, you know, they're, you, know you don't want to fast food or something. So you fast social media. Um, I just don't think that's a good yeah. characterization. I think we need to spend more time fasting social media. I think it's a genuinely meaningful and sometimes difficult uh, thing to give up for people. So Mm, maybe we need to take regular times of just going cold turkey on social media and saying, no, I'm not going to let this control me. I'm not going to let this form my desires. I want my desires to be for God and uh, for, uh, for the love of others. Um, I don't want it to be for these platforms. And so that might mean a fast that is uh, long-term. You might go, I'm just going to give it up for three months or six months. It might be that you have a different kind of rhythm. So you say, yeah, um, I'm not going to check my social media except for certain times of the day or even certain days of the week. Um, Maybe that's the way you go, but certainly bringing it under your under our control i think is what we need to be doing
1: mm. Yeah, you, you know sometimes i think uh there's value in saying no to some things mm. uh even if there's it's not entirely logically coherent with other things we might say yes to or or even if it's not a no that we want to say that everyone should say no to this sometimes i think there's a, a value to saying no to something just forgetting the practice yeah, yeah. of actually saying no to something sometimes because uh uh, and and to 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 put some sort of limits and to to get some sort of practice and say okay uh well this i'm just not going to use this platform uh, either at all or for a while or i'm not going to take up this new technology uh and it i don't particularly have a good logical explanation for it other than i don't need it and i just need to say no to some things sometimes
0: yeah oh uh, look i completely agree and um, in the beginning, I never even started a Facebook account. It got started for me by, by, uh, a couple of friends. Uh, and I kind of, <laughs> part of me wishes I just never gotten into it. Um, I do find value in it. There is certain connection, you know, I've made many friendships on social media, so there is good that can come about through it, but I think we need to be extremely hmm. cautious. But the other thing I'd say is that it's not just about saying no, it's also about what we say yes to. I think that you can't just say I'm gonna I'm gonna fast this thing I'm gonna say no to it done but I think it's also important yes. to develop distinctively Christian habits and rhythms in our lives in the place of the things that we want to uh, you know get rid of and say no to you know I think it's not just enough for us to say oh aren't we good as Christians because we don't do this stuff. We don't eat too much sugar and we don't spend too much time on social media. Yay us. I mean, that is such a crap attitude, isn't it? Yeah. Because what we actually want to develop in our lives as individuals and as communities is our our habits that swim against the tide of our culture that bring life. And that when others look at us, they can see a different way of living that is richer and more beautiful than other ways of living.
1: Yes. Which, which bring us back to fasting Seen in, in the bigger picture, fasting and the rhythm of life in the Christian year for earlier Christians, uh, was never just a rhythm of fasting. It was always a rhythm of fasting and feasting. Yeah. And that's so right. fasting was always contrasted with it, with its opposite, which was the celebration of food. Uh, and, and they were the, the two, the two points of balance, and it's like Paul's statement around the secret of uh, of contentment, where he knows the uh, knows what it is to have very little, and he knows what it is to have much, and he can be content in both conditions.
0: That's right. Or, or we look at the life of Jesus, and we see these rhythms pretty clearly. There are times when he's fasting and praying in the wilderness, and you know, not wanting to see people, and there are other times when he's. I don't want to be too flippant about it but you know he's the life of a party he's at the center of celebration and feasting
1: and and joy yeah so the, so the fast gives focus to something to prayer or and say the season of lent to focus to the lead up to easter but it mm. then also gives a new goodness to the experience of feasting at the end of it and a new and a much more profound appreciation of the goodness of the food that you you then do partake in at the end of it
0: Yeah, that's right. And I think our Protestant traditions have, um, certainly evangelical style Protestant traditions have tended to lose this a bit. You know, we've become so, you know, our tradition can be so focused on, uh, it's faith and not works. And, you know, we're saved by faith and not works and that kind of thing that we can lose, uh, Uh, touch with just how important it is to develop these habits and these rhythms, these disciplines, um, that are they responsible for salvation itself? No, of course not. But they do bring about goodness in our lives. They do help us to be a witness uh, to the world, and they do help us to be formed as more Christ-like people.
1: Okay, Matt. Well, I think we've, um, you know, there's a lot to talk about in your article, but I think we've given it fairly good coverage. So. Thanks for that. And what's going to be the subject in our next podcast?
0: Uh, so next time we're going to be talking about co-housing and in particular a story uh, that was uh, shared with us with Claire Harvey. And um, so that's going to be interesting. because We're going to be talking about co-housing but also failure and um, what happens when stories don't go exactly to plan. So that'll be next time. See you then, folks.